0: Well, there was a story uh, that first came out. It was first published under the heading of The Parish Boy's Progress. And um, it didn't eventually get published that way. That's how the serial came out. Uh, but it was published in 1838 under the popular name after the eponymous hero of the story, Oliver Twist. Uh, what made Dickens' stories so compelling is that they were not just um, Uh, really good stories, but they were social commentaries as well, and so what was happening at the time is that there were so many orphans on the streets of London that the government came up with this plan to build workhouses where the orphans could go and live and they could um, be put to work, to manual labor, and the idea was this this would give them dignity uh, that they were working for their food and at the same time it would keep them off the streets and it would keep them warm from the snow and they would be able to to get food. and the, the plan was good-hearted, but the problem was that a lot of the money that went to these uh, proprietors of these workhouses is, uh, went in straight into their pockets. So these people became rich off the government money, and they spent as little as possible on the orphans. And so these orphans were constantly cold. They, they were poorly closed. They were um, forced to cruel, long hours of manual labor and... Uh, they were fed the bare minimum so that the people that got the grant money was able to, were able to keep it for themselves, right? And so Dickens puts pen to paper and he writes the story of Oliver Twist about one of these workhouses and, and the, the orphan Oliver. So the, the most famous scene is what happens is right in the beginning where Oliver comes, uh, you know, the boys are all starving and so they draw straws to see who's going to have the dangerous duty of going to ask for seconds. And of course it, to Oliver, and so he goes kind of with fear and trembling and, and utters that immortal line, please, sir, I want some more. And uh, by asking for some more, he, he sets off this chain reaction where the, the members of the board are so offended and so appalled that this this orphan dare insinuate that he's not getting enough from them, and they're all, of course, described as being very corpulent. Their waistlines show that they're definitely eating enough. And um, so they offer five pounds to whoever will take this little runt off their hands. And then, of course, you know, that's where his story begins and he ends up with Fagin and all of that. That's the the story. Um, All because he said, please, sir, I want some more. Well, I wonder if you've ever felt like you are bothering God by asking him for some more. Uh, That you feel that you need to approach him with fear and trembling or that he's too busy Or that he has bigger fish to fry out there that uh, now you're going and you're you're asking for something that um, is really very minor. And well, this is what we're going to be looking at tonight. It's not wrong to ask for physical needs. It's not unspiritual or selfish. In fact, God not only allows you to ask for your physical needs, he instructs you to, he wants you to. So this is what we're going to see in Luke 11. So you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Just a a reminder of where we are. We've kind of been moving through the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer at the pace of a window-shopping snail. Just like a little third of a verse at a time. But it's a very important prayer. What we've learned from it so far is that uh, Jesus did not intend this He he did not give it to his disciples in order to be prayed word for word, kind of the way traditionally we've done it, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, you know, then just kind of as a rote prayer, because he gave it differently in Matthew than he did in Luke in two different occasions, but the structure of the prayers are the same. And it shows that it's a it's a good template for when you you go and pray to the Lord. So we started off by looking at that, our Father that God wants us to call Him Father. That you need to have Him as your Father means you have to actually be one of His children. You need to be a Christian before you go and pray to Him. Um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. That that um, and that's not the name of God. Remember we said it's not Howard be Your name. Um, it's hallowed be Your name, meaning may Your name may Your reputation be. Um, hallowed by others uh, esteemed by others revered uh, that your glory and your reputation would spread that's what you're praying for and we saw that that is the overarching motive of the whole prayer and that should be the overarching motive of all your prayers that's why we pray in Jesus name according to the reputation, the agenda the plan, the priorities of Jesus Um, so that's important that you remember that overarching umbrella motive of the prayer because tonight we're going to for the first time, get to a petition where we're actually learning to pray for something for ourselves, but you, you have to subordinate that to the umbrella motive of praying for God's glory. Um, we, how far do we get? Our uh, Father, O art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May thy kingdom come. And then Matthew adds, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we looked at that and what, what you're actually praying for, that the kingdom would grow numerically as more and more people become Christian, that the kingdom would grow In each of us as we become more and more um, like Christ and obedient to him and more mature. So his will is being done on earth by more people. And his will is being done on earth more consistently by each of us. But that we're also praying for the the final aspect of the kingdom to come. That Jesus would come and set up a righteous kingdom on earth as the Bible says that he would. So that's kind of where we find ourselves. And we're going to carry on tonight. So let me just read it again for you. Luke 11, verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then he jumps now, um, Luke does, to give us each day our daily bread. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, Three ways to give God glory by asking for your needs to be met, your physical needs. Three ways to give him glory: one ask confidently, two ask constantly, and three ask contentedly. so firstly, ask confidently, look at verse three, give us each day our daily bread. This is a, an imperative it's a command. When Oliver Twist asked, "Please, sir, can I have some more?" he was highly afraid of the answer he was being af- he, he approached um, the master of the house, with this fear and trepidation. Whereas here, Jesus says, you know, you're praying to your father. This is not the manager of a workhouse. You can come to him, our father who art in heaven. I have this motive for your glory to be spread. And now I'm getting to the part of the the prayer where I'm asking for my needs. Notice that the prayer doesn't start with, dear God, I need a parking space. By the way, may your name be hallowed it starts with the motive of God's glory and for his kingdom to come and for the the great grand plan of redemption um, to be done and for people to be saved. And those are our top priorities and those are the things we should pray about first. But that doesn't mean that we can't pray about the things that we want. So here Jesus turns the corner in this prayer and says you can ask confidently that your needs be met. James chapter 1 and verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. So if you're in a situation where you don't know what to do, you don't know how to handle this relationship issue, you don't know how to handle what's going on with your kids or in your marriage, or you've got you've got to make a decision about your health, you know, whether to get the surgery or whether to Go with a medication, or you have to make a decision about what college you're going to, or who to marry, or anything where you're just like, I I just don't feel up to making this decision. And you go to God and you ask Him for the need that you have of wisdom. God doesn't say, You're always asking for wisdom. Didn't I give you wisdom on Tuesday already? Just use that wisdom. He doesn't do that. James 1 5 says, If you lack wisdom, ask God, and He gives generously. The as he says, liberally, I think, without reproach, there's, there's no scolding. He loves it when you ask him for wisdom because he knows that you need it. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So this is talking about the need for wisdom. He gives liberally. He doesn't reproach you. He's generous. Now it's talking about the the spiritual need that you have of grace. You can come confidently in both of these cases. If you need something from God, you come to him confidently knowing that he wants to hear from you. I, I can just tell you as a dad that when you buy your kid a Lego set, it's so fun to see them playing with it. But then you start Watching them and how they're getting it wrong and they're getting frustrated and they're banging it It's not working and everything and you start getting frustrated. And Then they ask dad. Can I can you help me and you don't say no? I got you that Lego set you do it on your own No, it's wonderful. Of course I can help you. This is now we can do it together And let me see and then you just quickly do what they can't do because their little fingers are too small That's how God is with us. Yes. He gives us something to do and as we're doing it. He wants to be involved and so when, he, when you need help and you ask for help, he's like, good, thanks for asking. I'd love to help. I want to be part of this. This is why I gave it to you. Our relationship is what's important, not the Lego house. So if you need wisdom for something, ask him, and he'll give it to you. If you need grace for something, come with confidence. Jesus died on the cross to make it okay for me to step into the presence of holy God, and he's not offended by my sin because my sin has been paid for by Christ. And I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So I can now boldly come before him. I love knowing that I'm not bugging God. When I'm asking him for something. I'm his child. He wants to do it. Have you ever seen that picture? Um, It's just such a great photograph of John F. Kennedy sitting in the Oval Office at the Resolute Desk. The famous desk. And... In the picture, there's little Teddy Kennedy as a kid playing around under the desk. And it's just such a cool picture because here you've got this like, important dad who's you know, ruling the world from the Oval Office. But his kid's in there playing in the desk. And I sometimes feel that's, that's how I am in the throne room of God. You know, here's God and he's running the world. But I get to come and say, hey, Daddy, i got this thing I need. And he just lets me be there in his presence. And it's a wonderful thing to think of because of what Jesus did, that's how he views us. We're not a nuisance. We're his children. He wants us there. So God loves for us to ask for help. That's why Jesus said, Father, this is what you're asking. Father, give us this day our daily bread. And this is why it's worshipful for you to ask for something. Because sometimes... you might think of well, the worship part of my prayers, where I'm telling God, you know, he, I'm extolling His glory and His majesty, and I'm thanking Him for things. But when it comes to the stuff that I need, it's not really worshiping anymore. Now it's just requests. But requesting something of God is worship, because think about it. Firstly, you are trusting Him as the source of your needs, so you you're, you have to believe in God to pray to Him, right? And so you're, you're exercising faith, which God loves to see in us. Just the mere fact that you're... Don't pray like this. You know, big man upstairs, if you're even there, and if you can even hear me, I could really use some help right now. No, no that's not how to pray. Um, you come to God, you believe that he's there, so you're, you're, you're approaching him as the source of your needs. Secondly, you believe that he's good because you know that he wants to hear from you and he wants to help you with these things, and you believe that he's able. If you're praying to God to ask for something, you're only asking him to do that because you think he can do it. And so it's worshipful because you're exercising faith. You're exercising the faith in him as the source, as the goodness, and that he's able. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of shifting. Every good gift, James 1.17. My friend um, Jack Hughes, he's preached here before. He makes um, fly fishing rods as a, as a hobby. And he puts Bible verses on them. And he's, one of his favorite rods is the one and it has got that reference on there. Just to remember that when he pulls in a fish, every good and perfect gift is from above. Um, I don't know what the fish thinks about that, but for him, the fish is the good gift that God has given him. God is always generous, God is always good, and he's always loving. Psalm 34:10 says that the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. Those who seek, there's there's two categories of creatures in this world: those that are God's children and come to him and lack no good thing. And everyone else is kind of fending for themselves, including animals, the young lions. Psalm thirty-seven, twenty-five. David says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. I've lived a long life. I've seen a lot. I've been, you know, he, he was chased by Saul. I've been in the wilderness. I've been on the run for my life. I've had my own children turn against me. I've been through a lot, but one thing I've never seen is the righteous begging for bread. And this, this was a particularly uh, precious verse to me when I was in seminary, and I was you know I was just really poor. All the money I had went to paying for tuition and that type of thing, and at one, one season I was having one meal a day because all I could afford was the 99-cent the double cheeseburger at Carl's Jr., and uh, that's what I ate, because that's what I could afford, except for Tuesdays. It was 29-cent Tuesdays at McDonald's, where you could get a Big Mac, and I would have like four. Because um, I was poor, but I, I remember just knowing I, I have what I need. I never have to go and sit on a corner and say, homeless, you know, I have no, no food. Like, I, I always had what I, what I needed from the Lord. And so just like a good father does, God takes responsibility for his children. Now, at this point, you might have this question. If this is true, does that mean that there are no hungry Christians anywhere in the world? And unfortunately, no, that's not what that means. Um, Sometimes even Christians go hungry, but there's a reason for that. It's most often because they are being persecuted. So part of their persecution is that they have been stripped of their physical needs. And and sometimes even that leads to death. Um, I met a number of these Christians when I went on a a missions trip to Egypt. And we went to train pastors in the underground church. And one of the things that we did is we went into the city dump in Cairo. And it's a really fascinating thing. There's a whole church in there, a church in the cave, they call it. You can Google it and go and see. But it's right in the middle of the city dump. So in Cairo, there is no... um, Waste collection system Every day you take your trash to the curb and you just leave it there and Cairo is a massive city with millions of people and These people just dump their trash not in bags just out there and Then before the Sun comes up sort of like 430 in the morning the Christians come out Because remember it's it's a Muslim country and Christians are persecuted the Christians come out and they collect these are Christians They can't get jobs because in, in Egypt your religion is printed on your ID card. And if, it, if you're not Muslim, you can't get hired for any job. So these Christians live in the city dump. And they come out in the morning, and the reason that the, the country doesn't drive them out and persecute them too badly is because they need them. Because they collect all the trash. And they take it to the city dump, and the different families come together and they sort the trash. So we went and saw this. We went into the dump and we went and met these people, these Christians and you meet the family that collects the milk bottles, you know, the plastic milk bottles and there's the family that collects all the string and there's the family that collects the the cans and the family that collects all the organic stuff that they then go and sell to the shops to turn it into fertilizer. And and there's like a whole system and the the whole country runs on this unofficial idea that, don't worry, the Christians will pick up the trash. And so you're standing in this, and it smells. I mean, they don't smell it because they live there. And by by live there, I mean they have have rooms that they build in the dump. And they have a church there. And they can worship freely there because nobody wants to come and kill them because then who's going to pick up the trash? So they're not going hungry. It's not a way I would want to live. Do you want to live that way? These are our brothers and sisters. We're going to see them in heaven. They're going to have bigger houses than us in heaven, I'm pretty sure but God's still looking after them, even in their persecution. Sometimes there's hunger because the dominant religion in the country prevents the people from using the resources that God does give them. So God is answering the prayer and giving people food and then the dominant religion is stopping that. One example of that is India. In India, there's massive hunger, but there's also an overpopulation of cows because in Hinduism, you're not allowed to kill cows, it's the sacred cow. You've heard of that? So it's a vegetarian religion. You can't kill cows, but people are hungry. And so they have to feed the cows to make sure that the cows live, so they don't have, money for the, they don't have food for the, the people, and the people can't eat the cows. I mean, that's just taking your vegetarian one step too far, right? Um, or sometimes there's, by the way, there was, somebody did a calculation. There are enough cows, sacred cows, in India to open one million McDonald's stores and, and feed everyone through that. Well, uh, it's not great food, but it's better than nothing. Then um, sometimes there's a a famine caused by unbelievers sin that affects believers. That's another reason people go hungry. An example of that would be um, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is a, a country that um, borders South Africa just to the north and Robert Mugabe was a dictator Um, for many, many decades, as long as I can remember growing up. And um, he was just an extremely wicked man, and he took all the money in the country for himself, and it caused a widespread famine in the land where a lot of people had to flee Zimbabwe and go down to South Africa. So we had lots of friends that fled Zimbabwe because there was no food there. Because that, that one unbeliever's effect was driving people to starvation etc 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 i mean you can think of stalin and the way he starved uh, the russian population and so sometimes there is hunger but it's it's not because god isn't providing the food it's because there's some sin that's involved there now most of us we don't have those problems in our faith our most our problem isn't that we're worried about our, our next meal we're worried about retirement we're worried about many years from now That we'll be able to live at the level of the lifestyle that we've grown accustomed to. So that's a very different battle that most people in the world are fighting, right? But is it true that your next meal is safe? Or is it true that your next meal is still something you need to depend on God for? We feel like our next meal is safe. It's going to come no matter what. because It's in the fridge at home. It's leftovers from my previous meal, right? Or whatever it is. But there's a lot that could go wrong between you and your next meal. And you need God to protect that and to provide that for you. And you think, well, I, I, I know I'm, I'm safe because I have, not only do I have my job, but I've got my savings and my investments and my insurance and all of that. Listen, <laughs> that is folly if you put your faith in that stuff. That stuff can disappear overnight. It's not easy to work if you can't breathe. God gives you your breath. God gave you the education that you have to get the job that you have. God gave you the connections that you have. He gave you the ability to work hard, anything that you think you did to get your situation where you can provide for your next meal, God gave you all of that to get you there. And you need to thank him for it, and you need to ask him to sustain that because he can take it away at any time. A reminder of, of the movie "Shenandoah," um, came out in 1965. There's a scene in Shenandoah where Jimmy, you know Jimmy Stewart. He's the actor in it, and um, it's set around the time of the American Civil War. And uh, there's this farmer, Charlie Anderson, who is bitter at God, and he's sitting at his table with his seven children, and they're about to eat dinner, and one of the kids reminds him to say grace, give thanks for the meal. And so the farmer says, Lord, we cleared this land, we plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. And we wouldn't be eating it. If we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard. For every crumb and morsel. But we thank you just the same anyway. For this food we're about to eat. Amen. Just the sarcastic. Ungrateful prayer. I did all this work. To get this food here. So what am I actually thanking God for? But those are the words of an ignorant fool. There is no way he could have harvested anything without the energy and the health and the life essence that God was giving him every single day. And It's the same for us. So don't put your faith in the fact that your refrigerator is full or your deep freeze or your pantry or your bank accounts. You need to go to God and be thankful for what you get every single day. Make a point of going to God with all of your needs and ask confidently. Now you might say, well, what if I've, My whole life I've always had everything I needed. Well, that brings us to our second point. Ask constantly. So in verse 3, he says, Give us each day our daily bread. Each day, according to the day's needs. Not yearly. We don't pray in January 1st. Please God, provide for me this year. Amen. That's That's not how God wants, that's not how Jesus taught us to pray. They went to Jesus to teach us to pray. Pray every day for your needs. Constantly. This is why God designed human beings to get hungry daily. I mean, think about it. There's some animals that don't get hungry daily. Uh, Bears. Bears can eat and kind of store it up and then just not eat for months and just hibernate. You know, God could have made us that way. You eat for a season of the year, and then you don't eat for a season of the year. But no, he made it that you, you try to go one day without eating, you're going to feel it. That's how, he, that's how he designed us. He wants us to feel every day vulnerable and needy. And you kind of, you don't even realize it probably, but you build a lot of your day around eating. You know, you set your alarm early enough that you can have breakfast before you go out. Or you're, you know, like me, I skip breakfast and drink coffee. That's, that's my, coffee's my breakfast. But if I don't have my coffee, there's a problem. You know, that's happened before. You get there in the coffee machines, there's no coffee. Or well, there's a, coffee isn't ground, and the grinder's broken. I have, I promise, this is just confession time. I have, in my lifetime, at least once, been seen in the kitchen with a mallet pounding coffee beans to grind them so that I could make coffee cuz I couldn't wait to get to the store to get ground coffee. I mean, how are you supposed to go there if you're not even awake yet anyway? You you build your whole day around when you're going to have lunch, what you're going to have lunch, what you're going to have for dinner, you're planning things. And God designed us this way. So Matthew 6:34 Jesus said, "Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." God wants us to to have to deal with today and need him today and pray to him today. Otherwise, he could have made us like a ship that, you know, you fuel a ship for three months and it doesn't have to get fuel again. Well, we can't do that. Focus on one day at a time. It makes you more productive. It makes you be generous and it helps you overcome worry. If you focus on today instead of tomorrow, well, if I share this with this person, I'm not going to have enough for tomorrow. No, God says I want you to focus on today. Don't worry about tomorrow. That will help you to be generous with other people today. How much of your giving is curtailed by your fear that if I give now, I won't have what I need when I need it? And God says, no, no, no. I just want you to deal with one day at a time. Pray for your daily bread. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, that no one should force you to give. For God loves a cheerful giver. And then this great verse, verse eight, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 9 is that if you... You, lay, you leave it all out on the court. You know, you, you, you put it all out there. You, you give what you need to give. You finance what you need to finance in order to do the work of the ministry. And he will make sure that you have what you need in all abundance at all times so that you will always have what you need to do every good work. Now, sometimes people struggle financially. And it's sometimes because they have mixed up their financial priorities. They have sowed sparingly. They have not been able to do what God told them to do because they've spent their money on the wrong things. And so verse 8 says, God is able to make grace abound to you. But you do need to ask constantly. And what happens is people, rather than focusing on today and the needs today, they focus on what they want today that God hasn't provided yet. And they don't want to wait until God provides. They want it now. And a lot of places in the world and a lot of times in history, that's just called tough luck. You know, you want something now, you don't have the money for it, tough luck. You just have to wait. But now, and especially where we live, you want something now and you don't have the money, no problem. (laughs) You just swipe a credit card. And they will give you credit cards. They'll They'll just hand them out. They don't care if you can pay them or not. And you can just buy whatever you want right now. And so people think this is fantastic. I, I, I want this. I need that. I wanted some more of this. I'm just going to go into debt. And then at some point in their life, they are in need. And then they'll sometimes show up at the church or come to my office. Why is God not providing for me? Doesn't the Bible say that God should be providing for me? And then you sort of, oh man, I, I don't know. I've, I'm not that old, but I've been young and now I'm sort of middle-aged. I've never seen the righteous begging bread and now you're here in my office begging for bread. So let's just have a look at why God hasn't provided for you. Has he really not provided for you? Because you would be the first person in history. And then you see, oh wait, no, God provided you very lavishly and you still overspent and went into debt and lost a lot of your money because of, trying to get more money and not being content with what you got and so you put it in investments that went south, or you've been spending so much of your money on interest because you got all your stuff early, or you've now got all the stuff in debt that you don't actually need, so the things that you do need you don't have any money for, now you're begging for bread. Friend, that's not God's fault. (laughs) That's not God's fault. If God gives you what you need and you spend it on something you don't need, and then you complain that you have need, you've misinterpreted the situation, not God. Some people say, well, I wish I could give to God's work, but I can't afford it. Sure, what they mean is, I now can't afford to give to God's work because of all the stuff that I've committed to spending for myself. Now I don't have any money at the end of the month because I got all these bills. What are your bills? Credit card bills. For what? Clothes you live in like a really cold part of the world? No, I live in Mobile. Okay, so you don't need clothes for Mobile. You need like one set of clothes. When people who say, well, I can't afford to give to God's work is like saying, if I obey God and give generously like he wants me to, then he will not provide for my needs. That's just not what, that's the opposite of what the Bible says. So be obedient and be generous and responsible and ask constantly for provision. Now you might be asking, well, what about when you want something that's not a need? Is that okay? Is it okay for a Christian to want? Okay, so I don't need a nicer car or a nicer watch or a whatever, bigger house, but I want one. Is that okay for me to want? Well, that brings us to our third point. So we've looked, ask confidently. Give us each day our daily bread. You're talking to your father, ask constantly. It must be each day that you check in with God for your needs. But thirdly, ask contentedly. So verse 3 says, give us each day our daily bread. Now let's first focus on the word bread. Bread in this verse is what we call a metonym. Try to remember all the way back to high school English. Um, A metonym is a figure of speech that we use all the time where one aspect of what you're talking about represents a larger aspect of what you're talking about. So, for example, if, you know, men, if you go and ask um, for your girlfriend's hand in marriage, you go and ask the father for, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? He doesn't say, oh, I'm glad you just want the hand because you're not getting the rest of her. You know, it's like, no, if you take a hand in marriage, that means you get all of her. Right. You know, or, you know, the White House released a statement. Well, what do, what do you think the government thinks? Well, no, the White House is a metonym for the rest of the government as well. Okay, so you, you understand that. So when he says here you're praying for bread, bread is a metonym for something. It's, it's a small part of something, and it's, what's it referring to? Well, bread refers to your physical needs the, needs, the things that you actually need. We even do that today in English. We say the, the person in the family who is the one that is earning the money that supports the family is called the... The breadwinner, yeah, the breadwinner. But it's linked to the word daily, and daily is a little trickier to understand. Bread's easy, you're praying for your physical needs. But the word daily, and I, I checked six versions, um, English versions, and they all use the word daily. So whatever version you have, it says daily bread. But in the Greek, it doesn't say daily bread. It says, it's an interesting word, um, epiousia which comes from two words. I'll teach you a little Greek, yeah? Epi just means around, like an epidural is anesthetic around the dura. Um, so epi means around, and "ousia" means essence. We get the word essence from it, or essential. So when you're praying for epiousia bread, what you're praying for is the, the food and physical things that I need around my essence, to help me survive the things that I need, things that are essential for life, you could say. So a good translation would be, give us this day our essential needs. That's what you're praying for. So it's not just food. Of course, food's part of that. But your clothing and your, your where you live and, and if you need transport to get to your job so that you can buy clothing and, have, and shelter and food... That's all part of it. Those are all part of your essential needs. There's some parts of the world, you don't need a car. In some parts of the world, you do need a car. One of California, if you don't have a car, you die. Um, because every single thing is a 45-minute drive away from wherever you are. Um, and here, I mean, you can't take a skateboard to any place in Mobile. You need a car. So that's okay. So when you're praying, that's what you're praying for. It's okay to pray for a car. I mean, you know what I mean. To pray for your needs to be met, whatever that is. That may, may include transport. So that's what you're praying for. Your epiocetia, your, your essential needs. So that you can live a life that is sustained all of, with all of its essence. But what's excluded from that is luxuries. It's okay to have luxuries. But that's not what you're praying for. Because God can strip you of all of your luxuries and still be faithful to his word saying, I'll take care of your essential needs. And so it's very important for Christians to understand the difference between an actual need and a want. And you can ask God for your wants, but if he says no, don't sulk about it. And you can ask him for your needs, and he never says no. So if you're asking for something, and he's saying no, guess what? You don't need it. You don't need it. So the key to asking for your physical gifts is contentment and asking contentedly. Don't ask God to feed your covetousness for more and your greed for more. Ask him to give you what you need, your basic needs. Now what tends to happen is people just go into debt, then they can't make ends meet, and then they pray for help, and they wonder why God doesn't answer. God already answered before you prayed, and you ignored his provision. So he gave you enough, but now you've used it to go into debt, and now you have needs. And God doesn't reward sin and folly. People keep thinking, "Okay, well, I've done this bad thing now, and I've got myself into debt. But surely it's God's job to bail me out." That would be like rewarding you for your folly. And Proverbs 14:24 says, "The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings poverty." The crown of the wise person is his wealth. You don't crown the fool in his folly with wealth. That's counterproductive. Then nobody would try to be wise with their money. Proverbs 21, 17 says, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Don't worry, that doesn't mean you can't cook with olive oil. I mean you can never have a glass of wine but this is what it says he who loves wine and oil and wine and oil again are metonyms for the food that you don't actually need but really nice you don't actually need wine and oil but if you love the good stuff and you spend all your money on the good stuff then eventually you don't have any money and then you don't have any good stuff so what you need to do is learn to balance that. Make sure that you've always got money for what you actually need and spend a little bit on the good stuff. But make sure you've got what you need. If you love pleasure, you, you will be a poor man. So that's per- that doesn't mean you can't ever enjoy yourself. What he means is if you love pleasure rather than the hard work and sacrifice it takes to actually make money. This is a good verse for video gamers nothing wrong with playing a video game necessarily, but if you love playing video games, you will die because you're not going to eat. People have literally died playing video games because their priorities just becomes pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. It's just dopamine hit, dopamine hit, uh, plugged into the matrix, you know, and then they die Um, or they're poorer. Now, you you might say, I know somebody who got a job playing video games. That's the winning lottery ticket right there. But that's very, there are very few people who get paid to play their video games or whatever it is. I like playing golf and I make a living out of that. That's great. That's fantastic. But you find anybody who actually does those types of things for a living and they'll tell you it's no longer pleasure. It's now work. Now you wake up at 4.30 so you can go to the driving range so that you can win your tournament, so you can pay your bills. You might enjoy your job. I enjoy my job. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's no longer loving pleasure. People who literally just love pleasure and just want to do what's fun all the time end up poor. So, don't spend all your money on luxuries. First Timothy 6, verse 6 says, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. Contentment means being happy with what you've already got. For, Paul says, 1 Timothy 6, 7, for we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. With clothing, you can throw in housing there too, like shelter from the elements that can kill you. you got food to sustain your life. you got shelter to keep you alive. That's what you need. Every single other thing that you own is a bonus. And God loves giving us bonuses. Don't feel bad about it. Enjoy it. But don't think you need it. And don't cry when you lose it. I always talk about the baby, what babies come with. I mean, it was just such a crystallizing moment for me when, when we had our first kid. And, you you know, when the kid comes out, as you know, obviously, they come out with nothing. And instantly, they have a hat and a blanket. I mean, it's just like, they are just in this world. They don't know what's going on. They're just screaming their guts out. And they have a blanket and a hat. And, and from that moment on, you're just like, you know what? This is your life. You're going to be taken care of. And you, you should never grow out of that wonder and awe that I came into this world with nothing. But as soon as I was cold, I had a blanket and a hat. And I just cried a little bit more. I just squeaked a little more and I got some food. And then I squeaked some more and someone cleaned me up. And, and that's the rest of your life, right? You have needs, squeak for them. You know, just ask God. I got, I got this need. This, this thing has come up. And go to him humbly with, if, I, if this isn't a real need, and you say no, I'll be content. So if, you, if you're not sure, just ask him and you'll see. So uh, my, my kid got into this college, but we don't have money to pay for it. What should we do? Ask God. If he gets a scholarship or some rich anonymous uncle dies that you didn't know he had, <laughs> leaves him some money, whatever, you're like, there you go. God, a, a stranger things have happened. But if you pray and nothing comes in, you're like, okay, now we know God's will there. We will be content with what God gives us. And if you live your life that way, instead of comparing yourself to other people and what everyone else is striving for and just look at what, what have I been given already, and I'm content with that. In fact, I'm content with less. He can take away what he's already given me and I'll still praise his name because I know one thing's a fact. He's never going to take away so much that I can't live and praise him. So just remember to pray like King Egger. Um, in Proverbs 30, verse 7, Egger prayed, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is Yahweh? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That is a great prayer. Proverbs 30, verse 7 to 9. Give me enough that I'm not sinning against you by worrying and stealing. But don't give me so much that I feel like I don't need you anymore. And so a very simple application. Every day, pray. Give us this day our essential bread. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the many, many good blessings that you give us. And they just show your abundant grace and mercy. I I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to fall in love with those gifts, but that we would be in love with you. And that we would thank you for all that you do for us. And that we would not put our trust in what you've already given us, but that we would put our trust in you and ask you every day and remind ourselves every day that we have needs and that you are the source of meeting those needs. And so we thank you that we can come boldly before you because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And we have a few minutes for Q&A. Any questions? Yes. What was the first part of the question, why? Oh, why do I land on? <laughs> uh, so the question is, why do I theologically land on premillennial dispensationalism rather than historic premillennialism? That's what you're asking? Um, because of the promises to Israel is the short answer. So, okay, just to explain that if if you're unfamiliar with the terminology. so. Um, Dispensational premillennialism is something I spoke about in on and was it the Sunday evening sermon or the Wednesday evening? Maybe both. Um, it's a theological position. Oh no, wait, that's also coming up. But that's coming up this Sunday night. I'm I'm speaking on that too. So it'll be a little bit more clear if you're not sure of those terms. That's what we're dealing with Sunday night. But it's a position that believes that Jesus Christ comes back before the thousand-year kingdom that He establishes. Um, but The dispensational part refers to the understanding that God um, still has dealings with the nation of Israel that have not yet been fulfilled, whereas historic premillennialism doesn't have that caveat, necessarily. Um, And so what I mean by that is that there's promises that God made to Abraham and to David as the part of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant that apply specifically to people who are ethnically Jewish. Israelite descendants. Um and they haven't been fulfilled yet. And so historic premillennialism finds a way to fulfill those promises to Israel um spiritually. And I believe that they will be fulfilled in the future physically and literally. That's a short answer, but hopefully Sunday night will do a bit more justice. Is there a follow up question about that? Historic premillennialism is a is a good view. It's a it's a, it's a respectable year. yes. So maybe, next week. maybe next week. Okay, <laughs> after the evening sermon, ask a follow-up question. Good. Any other questions? Yes. Things that have not yet been fulfilled to the promises to Israel so far. Um, oh, why I believe that there needs to be a future fulfillment. Um, I mean, if you go and read, you know, Psalm 2, um, 2 Samuel 7, the the Davidic promises, the promises to David about the Davidic king ruling physically in Jerusalem over the Jewish people, where the nations of the world will stream to Jerusalem to come and get their judgment, and he will rule over them with a a rod of iron, and he'll bring justice to the world and world peace. That hasn't happened. The promises to Abraham included um, offspring, which he got literally um, fame of his name, which he got literally. Um, uh, I'm saving land for the lost um, offspring. The land I'm saving for lost. It was the third one. Anyway, um, uh, he gets everything literally except for one thing, and that's the land. Um, the land was given, and the the dimensions of the land are mentioned, and that's just that's never been. And the the occupation of the land would be permanent. That well, that's never happened. Um, Israel has never had permanent occupation of that land. Um, and even now, the little sliver of Israel that is the state of Israel is not the fulfillment of that promise, because it doesn't go all the way to Egypt. And, and so um, that needs to happen. At some point, Israel needs to be all of Israel and drive out all the pagan nations. And promises in Zechariah 14 of all Israel being saved And uh, Romans 11 picks up on that. The whole nation of Israel who are alive at the time, at some point, all need to turn to their Messiah. So at the moment, there's just a remnant that believe, a very small portion, which was also predicted in scripture, that a very small portion would always be believing. There's always some Jewish people who believe in Jesus, but very few compared to how many there are, uh, because we're now in the times of the Gentiles. So there's prophecies in Daniel. So there's, I mean, there's dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament that haven't yet been fulfilled. And so the one way to explain that is they're all fulfilled spiritually in like a non-literal way in the church. And the other way to explain that is they just haven't happened yet, but they will in the future. And that's, that's what I think will happen. Good. Any other questions? Yes, Mr. Capone. What is the best way to pray for a lost family member, an unbelieving family member, or any unbelieving person in your life? um well because we believe that god is in control of salvation you can pray directly to god for the person's salvation so you can pray that god saves them you can pray that god brings someone into their life to share the gospel usually that's going to be you if you know them sometimes they don't want to hear it from you and so god can bring someone else into their life to explain the gospel of jesus christ to them that he lived for them and died for them um so that if they put their faith in him they can be forgiven of their sins And sometimes if if you pray for a family member for a long time and, and, you know, they've heard the gospel and they keep rejecting it, at some point you might want to shift gears and start praying that God would work in their life to bring them to a point where they are willing to accept that and humble themselves. And sometimes that means bringing trials and difficulty into their lives, unfortunately. I mean, that's the testimony of many people that I didn't turn to God until I was at the end of myself and all these bad things happened, and I didn't know what else to do. We've heard that testimony a number of times from the baptism, right? So sometimes that's what we need to pray for those people. Does that help? Yeah, good. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. What about that kind of uh, prayer of uh, make me bigger, make me make me whatever? <laughs> so, so what Jabez is praying there is, so Jabez's name means, um, I think it's injury or something like that, like it's a, like a pain in the neck kind of thing. And so he says, I don't want to be a pain in the neck to people, I want to be a blessing to people. And so please um, expand my borders, increase my borders, in- increase my influence, and and God grants him that prayer. And so then there's this whole, uh, Bruce Wilkinson wrote like a book called The Prayer of Jabez. It became like a whole movement of telling people you should be praying that God expands your borders and... The way that was usually applied is that my company would grow and become international or that my record label would go, whatever, my, my YouTube channel would take off and I'd make millions from that. Or, and that's not really what Jabez was saying. Um, Jabez wanted to be a blessing to people and he wanted his influence to spread. And that's a New Testament principle too, that if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. And if God gives you something and you, your desire is to use that to bless other people, then it's a godly prayer to say, I would like to bless more people so please allow me to do that you know and sometimes that starts with I have a gift of teaching and I'm teaching this little group of six people and they really seem to be growing and I would love to be able to teach more people and then next thing you have a class of 30 people and they're all growing and repenting and and being blessed and then eventually you you go into the ministry and you become a pastor now now you're preaching your church and as long as you're faithful and you're praying for those things those are godly desires it can be in business it can be with i mean i i know of um i know of somebody who prayed the prayer lord make me rich so that i can give money to to other people and he became he wrote a book and he overnight became a millionaire and he gave he opened a trust and put all of the money from his book into a trust that can only be spent on the ministry and not on himself and so i'm like I mean, that might be a frustrating prayer for some people that like you've got all this money and you can't even use it on yourself, but, but that was a genuine desire. Apparently, that was a genuine motive. He, he wanted to be rich so he could bless other people. So I'm like, you should all be praying that. Just make sure you tithe. Um, <laughs> I pray that God makes you all billionaires so that you can give to the work of the ministry, right? I mean, if it's a genuine desire and you're actually going to do it for that. Yeah, I don't have any problem with the prayer of j if it's done rightly. I just wanted to, nobody asked this question, but we were talking about it today, and I thought it might be a helpful thing just to mention in my last, my wife's on nursery, so I'll sacrifice her for the greater good. Um, the, just, just quickly, the, 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 people have been talking about Israel and the, and the war um, that Israel's in with Hamas, and sometimes uh, Christians can get confused because when you're reading about Israel in the Bible, you know, the descendants of Abraham, they're God's chosen people. Oh, that was the other part of the prayer, the Abrahamic promise, is that whoever blesses you will be blessed, and whoever curses you will be cursed. And that all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring, meaning Jesus. Um, and so people think, well, I don't want to curse Israel. I want to bless Israel. And that's, that's all good. So you should just, in general, never side against the offspring of Abraham. But guess who else is the offspring of Abraham? The Arabs. The Arabs. Yeah, Ishmael's lying. So you don't want to be cursing them either. Um, for, for, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't want to be cursing anybody. The issue of what's happening in Israel at the moment is not a religious thing. It's a political thing. There are terrorists attacking innocent people. So, of course, as a country, we should vote, if possible, to support the people that aren't the terrorists, whoever that may be. But that's not the same thing as a spiritual responsibility of Christians to support Israel as the chosen people of God, because at this time in history, they are God's enemies. They are God haters and they are under the judgment of God because they rejected their Messiah. And you don't want to side against God because you've got a soft spot for Jewish people. Um, The way we reach Jewish people is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them so that they can join the church and fulfill their calling that way and accept their Messiah, just as we all have. Um, so, there is no Christian responsibility to support the current nation of Israel from a political point of view. Um, does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying in this case, of course, it's right to support Israel because the people they're fighting are terrorists. <laughs> you always side against the terrorists. That's a good rule of thumb, right? Um, so, even if these Hamas were attacking Saudi Arabia, I would side with Saudi Arabia because you shouldn't attack, terrorists shouldn't attack innocent people. Anyway, I don't want to get too political, but if there's any follow-up questions about that, feel free to ask me later. Um, And that's all we have for tonight. Thank you.